The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Before we get to today's Five Reasons podcast, I want to tell you about our sponsor, X-Miami. The new X-Miami apartment community is the most fun and convenient place to live for modern Miami locals. It's right across from Bayfront Park and American Airlines Arena. Rent starting in just the 1200s, including a huge gym and two-level co-working space. The lobby is a coffee shop and cocktail lounge, and the pool deck is insane. There's also an app to manage mobile keys, packages, social events, and your thermostat. Your new home is available fully furnished, or you can rent by bedroom. Mention 5 Reasons Sports for a discount at move-in. Learn more at xmiami.co. That's xmiami.co. And now, on with the show. Welcome into episode 45 of the 5 Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always with Chris Whittingham. We have been really heavy heat lately, Chris. I, like, I was looking back through our library, and I mean, that's pretty much all we've done now, uh, with the exception of a couple of episodes for the past three or four weeks. We were carrying forward with the heat until they were out of the playoffs, and it coincided with the Dolphins having what is typically their most exciting time of the year these days, which <laughs> is the draft. And we, we just haven't done a lot of Dolphins content lately. We've kind of been pushing everybody to our really fantastic partner, in our network, three yards per carry with three guys, Simon Clancy, Chris Kaufman and Alfredo Ardiega, who are really plugged in on the team, have different opinions on the team. And so they started this podcast a little over a month ago, and it's like wildfire right now, um, just completely taken off. They're going every Thursday. Also, some Mondays went on this Monday, going to go Monday, Thursday during the season. And they did a big preview of the NFL draft, the Dolphins draft. And they were pretty much spot on with just about everything from the first pick to who the Dolphins might take at 11 to Roquan Smith going eighth overall all over the place on it. Put out another episode today, which we recommend in their library. You can get them where you get us, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and all those other sources. And we are pleased today because we figured we need a little bit. They beat us on downloads today, Chris. I mean, pretty badly. <laughs> yeah. okay. Off the floor uh, with us, man. I mean, just totally. I mean, bottom still spanking. Be- we're still beating balls cast, okay? So that's okay. We're still we're still beating balls cast. <laughs> they taking digs uh, at them for man. Come on. Well, that's all right. They take some digs at us too. <laughs> but uh, but from right off the bat today, three yards per carry was just absolutely killing it. Like people were waiting over the weekend to download this. So we decided that we were going to steal one of their hosts, which is something that we've done before. We had Chris Kaufman on a couple of months ago before the draft. I still remember Chris Kaufman was talking during that about how he thought that all this quarterback talk with the Dolphins was a smokescreen. That they he kept saying they can't really be this bad at this that they would be talking about so many quarterbacks and end up taking one and that proved true because they didn't end up taking a quarterback so now we're going deeper into the well here and we're bringing on simon clancy another of the co-hosts of the three yards per carry podcast you can find him 
at S.I. Clancy. S.I. Clancy. Also, he's part of their Twitter account, which is at three yards per carry, the number three. Simon, thank you for joining us from jolly old England. Uh, no worries, guys. How you doing? Got to be the only English guy you've ever had on, right? You're our, yeah, I think you're our first Englishman, yeah. Well, Winningham does Winningham does a bad English accent, yeah, though. Does that count? It doesn't yeah. count. Not really. I was going to make you do this entire thing with that, just so I would stand out. <laughs> uh, Chris. Maybe, maybe, maybe Chris should do it in an, in an English accent, and I should do it in an American accent. <laughs> yeah, see, okay, this has been a long bone of contention for me. What are the hallmarks of an American accent for, in, in your judgment? Well, it depends where you are in the country. I mean, I've traveled sure. a fair, fair around the country, so East Coast, New York, different, obviously, to the Deep South, of which, you know, like nothing else. But I suppose it's the same. You could do a very pot. Chris, I'm sure, could pull off a posh English accent or a kind of a Dick Van Dyke in, in uh, Mary Poppins kind of, you know, Cockney accent. I'm sure I'm sure the listeners would love to hear that. <laughs> we will have a, a different accent competition at some point. You can, you can you, 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 yeah. yes, yes, an accent off. You can try off your Americans. I'll go for maybe a Manchester <laughs> here or there. Well, I've heard right. Simon use the word crikey on a podcast. I don't know if Whittingham is <laughs> going to get quite to that uh, today. But, but thank, Simon, thank you for joining us today. And we're not going to cover all the same ground that you did on your pod because the audience is a little different. But I have a pretty good pers- uh, sort of idea of what your perspective is on the Dolphins draft. And before we get into the five parts of this, just quickly, you liked it, right? Overall, you were pretty happy with what they did. Yeah, I was really happy. I thought they first three picks, especially, I thought they really hit key markers in terms of what they were looking for. And then I thought, you know, day two and day three, you kind of hoover up good players along the way. There's a couple of kids in there that I thought really have a chance. So I, I thought, they'd, you know, a solid B plus I gave it, you know, B plus, A minus. I thought they did a terrific job. And you took exception, Simon. There were a couple of grades that I saw circulating on social media that were in the D or F range. Someone I don't know gave how- an F. Yes, I saw I mean, that. That's, that's I, I don't know how you come to that conclusion when you ended up getting – I mean, just start with the first pick here. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later. But just the fact that you got Fitzpatrick, a player who was projected to go earlier than 11, at a position of need on the defense because you needed another playmaker back there, particularly a guy who can play multiple spots as Fitzpatrick can. I don't know how you grade that draft an F when your first-round pick is a guy like that. It's not like that was a reach in the first round. I mean, this was a player that everybody projected to be pretty much a top-10 pick. Maybe he'd get to the Dolphins at 11, but it isn't like they grabbed somebody who was supposed to be an early second-rounder in the first round, which is something that the Dolphins have done at times. Didn't do that this time. Absolutely. I mean, I understand that people want to, we talk about the draft so much before it happens. And then, you know, as soon as it's finished, you kind of feel like you want to give grades and they should be a bit of fun. But to give a team an F 24 hours after the draft's over, you can't judge anything for two, three seasons. And look, when we came into the combine, Minka Fitzpatrick was pretty much a consensus top four, five pick. And probably when you scrape it all away, he's probably one of the three or four best players overall in this draft. His body of work at Alabama and in high school shows that. You look at the things that Nick Saban says when he talks about him. I heard one general manager last week say that, you know, when Fitzpatrick came in to visit, he had a suit on, he had a, a leather briefcase and inside he had a lot of notes and stuff and he prepared individual notes about the team. And the, and the GM said when he left the building, it was like a five or six year pro had been in there. That's the kind of guy that he is. And, you know, for for anybody to grade a dog, you know, any draft, it doesn't matter who we're talking about. I mean, I don't think the Raiders had a particularly good draft, but I certainly wouldn't give them an F. 
So to me, that's that's ludicrous. And you know, I, people like that should be banned from the internet, frankly. <laughs> for me, the for me, the one that was the the weirdest one, where people were saying, "Well, the Dolphins took a blocking tight end in the fourth round. They're reaching high for a blocking tight end," as if there is a litany of NFL ready contributors in the fourth round yeah. that are just lying Absolutely. around. I mean, how many eminently forgettable players come through the fourth round? If Smythe becomes a player who's on the team for seven years and performs a functional role that just about every team in the league needs, that's a that's really good value from a fourth-round pick. So for me, the rationale for some Absolutely. of these, I mean, and th- I'm not saying that the Dolphins are above reproach. They're certainly not. But I don't understand of some of the rationale behind the, the reasons why. A lot of the people talking about Durham Smith and, and kind of slagging him off and talking him down, they've not seen him play. How many people would, would be able to break down what, what Smith did for Notre Dame in terms of his blocking ability, his receiving ability? He's just seen as a blocking tight end. Therefore, he must be terrible and it must be a wasted pick. I mean, that's not the case at all because, you know, most people with any semblance of intelligence who've actually seen him play would say that, you know what, he reminds me a little bit of an Anthony Fasano. Well, Fasano's been in the league since about 1965. So, you know, and he's still, he's still playing. So, you know, if we can get a player who plays for as long in the league as Anthony Fasano does in terms of on-field, in terms of off-field leadership, all those sorts of things, I'd say that Darrell Smith is a pretty decent selection. I, I just think it's, there's a little bit of negativity, A, because it's the Dolphins, and a bit of ignorance, I think, in the best, in the nicest possible way. Just because people don't, you know, a lot of people when it comes to the draft end up just focusing very much on the bowl game. And, oh, I saw, I saw Notre Dame in the bowl game, didn't do anything, didn't catch a pass, didn't do, he must be terrible. And, you know, we'll talk about narratives as we go on, I'm sure, but... That's just one of the narratives, I think, around the draft. It, if the Dolphins pick a player, he has to be terrible, A. And B, if he's anything other than a superstar, then we haven't heard of him. Therefore, he must be awful. It's it's boring. And if the Patriots pick a player, he has to be great, no matter he's, who he he's is and, and where he was drafted, right? Because Belichick every, picked him. Every free agent the Patriots sign is a tremendous signing, and every team missed out on him. And every draft pick the Patriots had. I mean, the Braxton Berrios thing is the most hilarious I, mean, I don't know how many tweets I got over the weekend about how Miami gay sucks because he didn't draft Berrios. Well, you know what? <laughs> Kenny Stills is the most effective player in the NFL out of the slot in terms of number of catches and the work that he does out of there. You've also got Jakeem Grant, Albert Wilson, Danny Amendola, Mike Jasicki's obviously going to play somewhere. And then you can we've got two running backs in Balage and in uh, Kenyon Drake who can flare out. Why. Where is Braxton Berrios going to play? And these people kind of forget that the Patriots have just lost Danny Amendola and there's a potential slot for him to slide in there. But we draft Braxton Barrios in the sixth round. We may as well draft me because I'm not making the team either and nor was Barrios. So it kind of seems like, a, you know, it would have been a waste of a pick. All right, let's launch into part one of this thing, uh, which is the quarterback situation. And I think if Dolphin fans were frustrated by this draft at all, it was not really by who they picked in the first round or even who they picked in the second round, because I I sense a lot of excitement from most Dolphin fans about both of those picks. And just for the record here, unlike uh, some of the people you're talking about in the media who have blogs who gave the Dolphins a low grade, I saw Kuiper gave them a C plus, but we put a poll on the site on Saturday uh, after the draft was over, got roughly a thousand votes on uh, at five reasons sports, which you should definitely check out. We put polls up there all day. And one of the polls uh, that we came in was where you would rank the Dolphins draft. and, And people basically had it as a B to a B plus. So I think most people were pretty happy with it overall. But if there's one thing that people weren't necessarily happy with, it's that not only did you not get any of the top four or five quarterbacks in this draft, which there was so much buzz about, but you didn't end up taking a quarterback at all. So I just want to start here with you, Simon. Would you have, with Ryan Tannehill's situation, missing all of last season, getting hurt late the season before, although he did play well with Gase 
prior to getting hurt. And obviously he's going to be 30 years old. You've got a contract situation with him and they don't have Matt Moore anymore. So they've replaced Moore with Osweiler and possibly with David fails to start here. Would you have traded up, tried to get into that space in the top 10 to try to get one of those top four quarterbacks? It's such a difficult question because you don't know what the asking price was going to be. I saw a, a quote from Peter King today that he'd spoken to Dave Gettleman and Gettleman had said that, you know, people were calling up and they wanted, you know, the second overall pick for a box of popcorn, a, a hot dog and a, you know, a burrito and, you know, <laughs> get, get out of my, kind of get out of my face. I'm, I'm busy. Stop wasting my time kind of thing. You know, your minimum from jumping from 11, let's say to two, 11 to two minimum, you're giving up this year's one, next year's one, this year's two, and maybe, you know, another one just because of the, there are quarterbacks up there. I think it was obvious that the Dolphins, you know, we don't know. We're not friendly with Chris Greer or with Coach Gaze or Mike Tannenbaum or Adam Engroff. But, you know, some of the whispers that you hear is that the Dolphins were fairly enamoured with Baker Mayfield. And it seems like a number of teams, as the shadows have, have kind of disappeared and dissipated over the last sort of 72 hours, it's clear that NFL teams held Mayfield in much higher regard, even than we as fans and observers thought. I think if the Dolphins could have got Baker Mayfield, I think that would have been a an interesting decision. But it was clear even when Josh Rosen was falling. And Jed Fish and, and Adam Gaze, Jed Fish being Rosen's quarterbacks coach at UCLA, are very, very, very close friends. I was told that they were as close to best friends as is humanly possible. If Jed Fish is not s- is signing off on, ad- on Josh Rosen to Adam Gaze, then that's fine because he knows him pretty much as well as anybody. I think a lot of this comes down to trusting Ryan Tannehill. And I know that there is the injury and he's missed a season and a half. Interestingly, you don't hear the same conversation about Andrew Luck. Nobody's particularly looking to replace Andrew Luck. And I'm not saying that Tannehill has played at the level, but the two levels aren't that far apart. And I think there's a narrative around Ryan Tannehill that, you know, oh, he's a former wide receiver and he's not great. And it's, you know, and that narrative just remains. And it's very hard to break that. And actually what we've seen over the last 18 months before the injury was his play beginning to improve fairly dramatically. And under Adam Gaze, when the Dolphins went one and four and then they went on that run that ended up in the playoffs, Tannehill was easily playing his best football that he'd ever played. He was probably a top 12 to 14 quarterback in the NFL. And that's eminently winnable. You look at that game against Pittsburgh in the playoffs. I don't doubt that Miami would have made that game significantly closer had Tannehill been healthy. And then you look at last season when Tannehill was out for the entire year, I have no doubt whatsoever that despite all the other things, the hurricane and the cocaine and all those other things that happened, <laughs> the, Dolphins would have, the Dolphins would have made the playoffs last year. You, you can't tell me that the, the Sunday night game against the Raiders, the Buffalo loss at the end of the season, the, the, Tampa, the terrible Tampa Bay defeat, Tannehill would have won those games. I'm fairly sure of that, especially given the trajectory that he was on. Also, he's the epitome of what Adam Gaze wants in terms of cerebrally, in terms of mobility. His arm is more than good enough. We talk often about Tannehill being pound for pound one of the toughest players in the league because behind that offensive line over the years, he has taken a beating and he gets up and up and up and you can never question his toughness. And I wonder whether or not the last 18 months of him being out has almost solidified him in Gase's eyes because he is such a hard worker and his mental attitude and his attitude throughout rehab has apparently been off the charts because two ACL injuries, you know that your career potentially is over. He's obviously set up for life financially and that's, but he wants to succeed. He wants to be a winning quarterback to win a Super Bowl. And I think that if we get the Ryan Tannehill back, that was the same Ryan Tannehill that entered into that game against the Cardinals that he got hurt last year, then this Dolphins team has got a chance. And you look at why we didn't draft a quarterback beyond the top four and maybe Mason Rudolph and maybe Kyle Laletta, but realistically, are any of those quarterbacks better than, our third string quarterback in David Fails, are we would we just have been taking a quarterback just as 
say that, look, we took a quarterback. We might cut him in camp, but don't worry, we took a quarterback anyway. I mean, look what happened when Brandon Doughty, did we become a better team because we drafted Brandon Doughty? No, he just got cut. I don't see the, it's just not dichotomy for me where you think, are we just drafting a quarterback because everybody thinks we have to draft a quarterback and it doesn't matter whether he's rubbish or not. The very, you know, if we'd have taken Danny Etling in the seventh round, the LSU kid that the oh, Patriots took, God, would that, of course, but would people have been like, yay, we took a quarterback, it's all going to be fine. It's just a really odd narrative for me. I just don't understand it. I think you, you take a player if you think he's got a chance, but don't take a player for the sake of taking him just because you feel like it's going to calm the naysayers down. That, for me, just makes no sense whatsoever. I want to explore the Tannehill thing for a moment because I, I do think that the varying opinions on him are fascinating. To me, the reason why he gets criticized, I think more than his pedigree, is the Dolphins with him as their quarterback have peaks and valleys, and it, to me it's the valleys that stick out in the fans' minds the most. When they go through quarters for halves at a time, and they always seem to happen in Buffalo for some reason, when they can't put drives together, when they can't put first downs together, much less drives, much less scores. And so I think that there are too many times with him at quarterback that they've gone through the valleys and they've gone through prolonged stretches without quality offensive play. But like you said, Simon, they went on that run with him at quarterback, it started with him. It started with that turnaround. Now, Ajayi plays a big role in that as well. But to me, you saw the difference in the quarterback play that I think a lot of teams in the league have experienced, which is Jay Cutler at the end, David Fales, Matt Moore, journeyman quarterbacks and quarterbacks that are well past it. And what Ryan Tannehill produced, and I, I'm surprised that that difference in quality didn't kind of make the heart grow fonder with Tannehill a little bit. I understand he's entering age 30. To me, the idea of calling him injury prone or even saying that he's had two injuries, to me, he didn't have two injuries. He had one. And the first one, time, yeah. it was like semi-severe. And then the second time, it was all gone. And to me, the only frustration would be that he didn't have the surgery after it initially happened because it, I, I, I don't believe that those kinds of injuries can just heal naturally and all of a sudden your knee is fine. No, he was always going to need surgery. And to me, the only frustrating bit is we wasted a year of Jay Cutler and $10 million and Matt Moore and all this stuff that happened with him and not electing to have the surgery. But then I want to get to that, that sort of narrative point of view that they have to go and get a quarterback. I know, Ethan, and I'm sure you, you can provide the counterpoint on this, but I agree with you, Simon. Mm -hmm. Just going to get a quarterback just because I don't necessarily buy it. And, and Adam Gay is certainly someone who is well poised to have an opinion about quarterbacks and also has said in the press I always want to take a quarterback I always want more quarterbacks that's his thing he wants more and if he and the Dolphins draft room decided that none of the quarterbacks are worth it I kind of have to trust his opinion and to me 100% and to me the other thing about all of this is why are Dolphins fans so fixated on quarterback when this roster is so flawed? Like you saw in the postseason, and I can understand you can overreact, and I can understand that quarterback play is the most important thing in the NFL without question. But you saw with Bortles getting there. You saw with Foles winning the whole thing. And with Keenum and all these guys that went on prolonged runs in the NFL playoffs this past year, it's not just about the quarterback. You have to build a quality team, a quality roster, and the Dolphins did a pretty solid bit of roster building in this draft. Quarterback was not an eminent need. If you rank the needs of the team, it wasn't anywhere close to the top. And so the idea that you throw overboard the needs you have on your roster just because you don't think your quarterback is good enough to be in the top 10 he's good enough to be in the top 15 I don't understand that given what you saw this season which is really a Dolphins team that wasn't good at anything I just want to counterpoint a little bit on this you're totally right about building up the rest of the team I mean this was a flawed team and again it became 
more flawed after they had to, you know, part ways with Sue and Landry and had to plug those holes in different ways. And we're going to get into on the pod whether they did a good job of that, because I think in some spots they did and they are improved if you if you look at the totality of it. But I think where I get into this about taking a quarterback every year, I agree with your premise, Simon, about like, just don't just take a guy that you don't like that much just to take a guy like you don't do that to please the fans, no matter how much they're clamoring for it. I think the frustration from Dolphin fans on this is that we've heard this so many different years like we wanted I, I mean I remember going back to the Wanstat years okay where they talked about taking a quarterback every year I Saban talked about taking a quarterback every year but I, I think that the frustration from Dolphin fans is that they have and I share this a little bit is that if you look at the first two rounds over the past let's go back to Marino let's go all the way back to 84 this is just an organization regardless of the regime that just has not taken as many quarterbacks as other teams and then you see some other teams, uh, Green Bay is a good example of this. The Patriots are another example of this that have taken quarterbacks even when they've had quarterbacks and had even elite quarterbacks on the roster. And they've been able to then cash in on some of those guys. Now, in some cases, the Patriots take a Ryan Mallett and they don't end up getting very much for him because that one doesn't work out. In another case with Garoppolo, they probably could have gotten more than the second round pick that they ultimately got. And again, Green Bay has had a number of these situations as well. And I think that's where it is. I think for this season, I agree with you to a certain degree, Chris, on this. Like, they had much bigger needs than the quarterback position, so I agree with you. But I think it's the big picture of the Dolphins organization over the past 30-plus years where it's just like, okay, why is it all these other teams are finding guys, or at least they're taking sort of multiple dice rolls to try to find someone, and the Dolphins just don't do that very often, again, unless it's like a Brandon Doughty in the seventh round. But are they, though, or is that just a perception? Are we slightly skewed by the fact that the Patriots, who are a totally different entity to everybody else in the NFL, have done this twice with Jacoby Brissett and with Garoppolo? But you, you also brought up Dan Marino, and I think every quarterback is tainted by the fact that they're not Dan Marino because Marino holds a, such a special place because of what he did as a player, not obviously because he didn't win a Super Bowl, but the fact that he carried teams, that offense came and Duper and Clayton, and they carried teams year after year after year. And he was so special, so spectacular, just at the very most basic base thing that we love this game so much because he could just grip it and rip it. And Tannehill is almost tainted by the fact that he's not down. And every quarterback has been the same, whether they've been good or not. It's always talked about as, can he be the next Marino? Can he be the next Marino? Tannehill's not going to be the next Marino. But then I'll tell you what, very few people are ever going to be the next Marino. You also talk about 30 as if he's, you know, aging. 30 is not a bad thing for a quarterback. He is still developing. Aaron Rodgers is, what, 36, 38? Brady is, what, 41, 42? I like the fact that he's only in inverted commas. I don't think it should be seen as a bad thing that he's approaching 30. I don't see that there's an issue with Tannehill all of a sudden he's going to fall off a cliff athletically or, or those sorts of things because he's 32 or 34 or 36. And we talk about the Dolphins as a team generally being a bad franchise. But And I also hear this kind of stuff about, oh, Gaze, he's on the hot seat and he needs to go. And look, the Dolphins are 16 and 16 under Adam Gaze, taking out the playoff defeat to Pittsburgh. But he's only had 11 games with his franchise quarterback. Look at the Packers across the same period of time. They're a Super Bowl winning team, a better franchise in terms of better players from you know top to bottom of that roster. Mike McCarthy is 17 and 15 in the same period that Adam Gaze is 16 and 16. And he had Aaron Rodgers for 22 of the 32 games. You know, almost double the amount of games that Gaze has had Ryan Tannehill for. So I just think it goes back to narratives and things. Everybody, you know, talks about Tannehill's not this and he's not that and he's and I'm not sure a lot of that's true. Obviously, a lot of it depends on how he recovers 
and health wise. But Gaze is the guy that sees him every day. Gaze is the guy that's been working with him in the off season. They are close. I've been at games last season. I was a game in London. I was in the game in Carolina. The game in Carolina, I sat in the press box two hours before the game started. And there's Ryan Tannehill out running every single set of steps around that stadium for about 45 minutes. And he did it up, down, up, down, up, down. And he was he was giving it some. Then he was on the sideline throwing the ball to Leontay Carew and to Jarvis Landry and to Kenny Still. Same in London. You know, Gaze knows him. He knows whether he's going to be ready or not. He knows whether he's going to be ready mentally and he knows whether he's going to be ready physically. And you make a great point about the fact that he should have had the surgery and we did lose a year. And I wonder whether or not that kind of absence makes the heart grow fonder thing. It hasn't happened with him and it's really frustrating because he'd have thought that actually he would have been welcomed back with open arms because people have seen actually last year what he meant to this franchise and what he means to this franchise is potentially four, five, maybe even six extra wins when you look at the calamity that was last season. I think that could have been avoided if Tannehill had played and I think the Dolphins would have been in the playoffs for the second year running and then everything would have been different. Are you a business owner? You need help with bookkeeping, payroll, virtual CFO, or analytic services so you can focus on growing that business? You need to hire Analytic. They'll take care of your day-to-day concerns while giving you insights about your company so you can make better long-term decisions. You can find them at analytic.io. That's A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-Q.io. Or call 1-800-823-6320. That's 1-800-823-6320. Say that Five Reasons sent you, and if you sign up or refer someone who does, you'll receive a $200 Amazon gift card. Ethan, we got a podcast sponsor called Analytic. You don't think it's a bit too on the nose for me? All right, let's get to part two here, Simon. I was going to go to the defense next, but since we're talking so much about quarterbacks, let's stay with the offense and look at the totality of it. Everything that's happened in free agency and the draft to get to the position that the Dolphins are in right now. Obviously, the two defections or the two guys who are not there anymore that people focus on the most would be Landry and Pouncey, you know, at receiver and on the offensive line. And then at the running back position, no Damian Williams. But you've added, as you mentioned, Amendola, Albert Wilson, also added Frank Gore as a running back, drafted a running back in Ballage, and two tight ends, including their second-round pick, Gasicki, who they expect to be a big threat for them down the middle of the field and, and just making a lot of plays, although they're not going to ask him to block a whole lot. But clearly he's going to be available for Ryan Tannehill as a pass catcher. When you look at everything they did, including bringing in Sitton on the offensive line and Kilgore at center to replace Pouncey, do you think the Dolphins, putting Tannehill aside, the rest of the talent on the offense is better than what they had last season? I do, for two reasons. One, they're going to be much more scheme diverse. I mean, look at the, the players that they have. You could have the big package of uh, Stills with Parker, with Gesicki, with Smith, the tight end, and a one-back set. You can bring in, you know, all of a sudden you can replace them and you can bring in Amandola, Wilson, Stills, and Jakeem Grant and have those really quick, tricky guys, short area quickness. I just think that the ability to do so many different things is going to makes this offense really, really interesting because almost drive by drive, you're going to have, you could have an entirely different system in there. You could go jumbo on one one drive. You could completely supplant those guys and do something completely different. Get Ryan in the shotgun with these four really speedy, quick guys. Grant doing what he did back end of last season. Obviously, Kenny being the great deep threat, and then the underneath guys, Amandola, who runs such great routes. Wilson, who you know developed in Kansas City, has terrific speed. And then you've got these pass catching threats out the backfield. You know, Kenyon Drake's got terrific hands. 
Belage can run really is a really really good route runner. You can stick these guys out wide and, and they can run. Look look what Kenyon did against New England. Went to the top of the formation, just ran a corner out and caught a sort of 30 40 yard pass in the first half. I think A scheme diverse, B speed. I think that's really, you know, both sides of the ball the Dolphins have increased their speed. And C I think as much and as good of a player as Jarvis Landry was and he was I think that the over-reliance on Landry made us become so predictable as an offense. You know, people would talk, oh, you know, Landry has nine catches from 13 targets. Wow, we threw the ball at him 13 times. You know, teams know that it's coming. He still obviously made catches. He made plays. He was a firebrand player. He was a terrific player, especially in big moments. You know, he would convert third downs. He would convert fourth downs, those sorts of things. He just brought something different that we hadn't had in a long time. But we just became so reliant on getting him the ball from first drive to last. It just made our offense so predictable. And I think that will change. And I don't think you'll see a receiver catching 100 passes. You might have, you know, Amandola might have 30. Grant might have 45. Stills might have 42. Jasicki might have 46. I think that the spread of wealth will be far better. And I think we'll be a better offense because of it. And we talked about this in an NBA context last night in, in, our, in our NBA podcast, where the idea of a decentralized offense and what that can do to kind of help evenly distribute and not make anybody reliant on one thing. You look at the targets. Last year, there were 602 targets to be divided around, and Jarvis Landry got 160 of them. It's just an over-reliance on one player, and I agree with you, Simon. I think in the aggregate, the Dolphins can make up, and I think people have oversighted the average yards per catch, which was 8.8 last year, but if I just said to you, you got 602 targets and on a per attempt basis, you got roughly the same production, you actually might be a bit disappointed with that. So I don't think that it's necessarily going to lead to the Dolphins offense dropping off. I really like what they did at tight end because I, I think because the Dolphins haven't had it for such a long time, you don't realize how valuable quality tight end play can be to opening up an offense. They yeah. haven't had it since Charles Clay. They've barely had it. in. The, I mean, Randy McMichael was really good. Other than that, they have not had much of it. Uh, to me, the concern will always and forever will always be blocking until they get it right. I want to see Laramie Tunsil be a lot better. I want to see Jawan James be a lot better as a fifth-year tackle. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
I and you know sitting in Kilgore. Hopefully they're you know quality enough additions. I, I really want to see for once in my life a Dolphins team that can block well. It's still <laughs> going to be the big concern, but I think if everyone's healthy, if they get this thing going, I, I think that they can be a high tempo, really quality, athletic, and fast offense. And hopefully it ends up producing something more interesting because we've talked about this a bunch. Even if they haven't been good, at least be entertaining. At least play 31-28s instead yeah. of 20-17s. to I think this Dolphins offense has the potential to be that good, but it's going to take a lot of... And, and to me, the one concern with the Dolphins team in the big picture, and I was talking with Joe Shad, who covers the Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post today, and he was outlining all these ifs that have to come in. If Kenyon Drake can take the load, if this receiving core can come together and supply in the aggregate what Landry did, if you can get Gasicki to play well as a first-year tight end, if Laramie Tunsil makes the leap and that for me you have a lot of ifs on this offense but if they all come together i think it can be really high quality absolutely i agree and you know tonsil's a big question mark i actually think john jones played pretty well and i think right tackle of the nfl is a bit like slot cornerback in the nfl if you've got a half decent one you're doing pretty well you know bobby mccain is one of the top four or five slot corners in the nfl he's not a great cornerback but he's he's more than good enough and i think that's the same with Juwan jones I think Sitton will be very important for Tunzel and Tunzel's development. Because again, I don't think Tunzel had a bad year. I just think that sometimes he just has those kind of excruciating kind of lapses in concentration, which are frustrating. Kilgore is an interesting guy. You know, he's smart. He's tough. I thought he blocked really well, especially when Garoppolo played for the 49ers down the stretch in those final seven games. Look, Mike Pantsu was a soldier for this team. He played very, very well for this team in large stretches. Not so well when he moved to guard that one season. But let's not beat about the bush. As good as Pouncey was generally in pass protection last year, he was uh, oftentimes close to an abomination in the run game. You know, he he could not roll his hips anymore. He couldn't engage and then turn guys out of the hole because of those problems with his hips. So he got overpowered by big defensive tackles. I mean, he always had an issue with the bigger, more physical defensive tackles in this league. But last year, you know, he really struggled. He would get walked back into the hole. And actually, it was only because of Kenyon Drake's athletic ability that he was able to avoid some of those kind of losses that he managed to turn into decent gains. So, you know, I think the retooling of this line will be interesting. And again, it is an if, but a lot of teams have ifs. You know, even the Patriots have ifs. There's a whole lot, whole bunch of ifs on that Patriots defense. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the Patriots there because as I was sort of watching what Gase has done in free agency and the draft, and this really does apply to the offense in large part, it is very similar to what I remember Belichick doing when he first got to New England. Because people don't remember, like, that, that team in New England, you know, before Bledsoe got hurt, Brady took over. I think that team started the year, what was it, one and three, one and four? They did, they had, yeah. They didn't start very well. I remember I wrote a column, which I came to regret, saying that the Dolphins had a chance <laughs> in the division because nobody in the division was going to be any good that year, and then the Patriots ended up winning the Super Bowl. But neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, one of the worst. The other column, I you know, that the, the Heat wouldn't win the championship in 2006 because they'd gotten too many malcontents. So those are two I'd like to sort of stash somewhere. But yeah, do, do you it, think... Do you think they're on the archives on sunsentinel.com? We can find them, send them to Old Takes Exposed, do you think? You could probably find them. There was no Old Takes <laughs> Exposed at that stage, so I got, I got away clean. But when I was watching what he was doing, and again in the draft, it, it, this is the big thing. It's, it's the ability to go not only multiple in a game to adjust, but to adjust your game plan based on the opponent. And I don't think that the Dolphins in recent years have had the personnel to do that. You also mentioned Devontae Parker. I think that's an important part of this conversation because before last year, I thought he was the most important player on the offense. Like I thought 
going into last season, they had to get good Devontae Parker, healthy Devontae Parker, motivated Devontae Parker, Devontae Parker who fights the ball, okay? And they really didn't get that again last year, right? He didn't build on the end of his 2016 season, which he started to show some of those flashes. And again, they, they schemed around it, and they just kept throwing the ball to Landry. What they've done now is I think they've made it where they've insulated themselves a little bit. Like if Devontae does not show up again this year, and they decide not to extend him, decide he's not a long-term part of the future, they have these other options now where it may not matter quite as much, where you're not relying on him to become the number one receiver that you thought he was going to be when you drafted him. What do you expect from him, Simon, at this stage? You'd love to see him develop into something special because he has all the physical tools. He's got great hands. I mean, look at the body type. He's big. He can go up and out, jump guys. I just wonder mentally whether or not he has it to do what it takes to become the sort of player that you think he might. I wonder, on the plus side, I wonder if having this greater cast, the Jasikis, the Amandolas, the Stills, the Landrys, it takes a little bit of pressure off of him. He doesn't have to think that he has to be the guy. Maybe he can just meander along in his own way and get seven, 800 yards and four or five touchdowns and 60 catches. That actually, in the diversification of the offense, is probably not too bad. He just needs to stay healthy. Can you rely on him to win a game? Would Devontae Parker put the team on his shoulders like Julio Jones might do or Larry Fitzgerald or Antonio Brown? I think the answer is no, and that's unfortunate. I think Amandola as a person will help him because Amandola, clearly really important fixture of that New England team. An alpha male, somebody who you know has been there, has done it, and I think will help drive somebody like Devontae who just feels a little bit immature look i hate to, to use social media as a reason to slate a player or to feel like their commitment isn't great but i follow some of the dolphins players on instagram and uh, and through the off season you see guys working out rashad jones leonte carew incredibly hard workers stills parker they're all doing it there was an instagram the other day of jakeem grant where Devonte was up at Davy and he was getting his lunch and he put kind of stuff on his plate that didn't look like the healthiest kind of food. And Jakeem <laughs> was like, I'm going to send this to Kenny because you're not, you're not listening. When are you going to start your healthy eating routine? And Devonte sort of laughs it off, laughs it off. And the guys started to take it more seriously as this kind of, I don't know, 15, 20 second clip went on as if to say, you just don't get it, do you? And then the following day, there was another one with Kenny Steele standing there with Parker and kind of holding up his plate. And on it was kind of a load of green veg and a load of the stuff that he probably should have been eating. And it was almost as if he needed Kenny Steele to come and hold his hand and say, look, this is what you have to eat. And this is how you have to act to be an adult and to be a professional athlete. And these kind of, and you just think, look, if he's not getting his lunch menu right, how is he going to get what's going on in the field right? So it, the mental capacity just worries me. And like I said, it is hard to judge him based on a 15, 20 second Instagram story. But I kind of feel like that's the narrative around Devontae. And he hasn't quite worked out how to get out of it. And I wonder whether or not he ever will. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Carlo Navas. And unfortunately, the Heat have been eliminated from the playoffs because the Sixers and the referees are clearly cheating. Um, jokes aside, we're still going to be going strong. Every Monday, look for new episodes of the Heat Beat Podcast. We're going to be going into the Heat's future, past, and present, as well as going around the league. And we're going to be guest-heavy throughout this postseason run. So check us out at MIA Heat Beat on Twitter and Miami Heat Beat on Facebook so we can keep you posted on what's to come.
let's move on to part three here again with Simon Clancy. You can follow him at SI Clancy. Also follow at three yards per carry. Definitely download the three yards per carry podcast. because You get this kind of analysis and more with Chris Kaufman and Alfredo Artiega over there. Um, let's get to the defense now. And again, the changes that were made, the one obviously that everybody talks about is Ndamukong Sue in the middle, not there anymore. They did not replace him with a defensive tackle either in free agency or in the draft, just relying on the young guys brought in Robert Quinn on the defensive line. Lawrence Timmons, after pretty subpar year, is gone from the linebacker group, not there anymore. They draft Baker to add to the linebackers. And of course, in the secondary, the big change is adding Minka Fitzpatrick to a group that already has uh, you know, pretty good youth there. When you look at not only Tankersley and Howard, but also Lippitt, and then you get you know another year of Rashad Jones. He's going to be 31 years old. You know, again, I, I pulled this here, Simon, on Five Reasons Sports, and about 75% of people felt the defense was better or looks better than it did at the end of last season. Do you agree with that? I do agree. And, and again, much like the offense, I think it becomes scheme diverse. And we were really slow on defense. And all of a sudden, you draft Minka Fitzpatrick, you look at Baker, you look at the kid they got in the sixth round from Southern, Armstrong, all guys who run around the 4-3-7, mid-4-5s. That adds and increases team speed. Yes, and Damakonsu has gone. He was a phenomenal player. And I, regardless of how average the defense was during his tenure here, it shouldn't detract from the fact that he played week in, week out at an all-pro level status. He did. There's no denying it. He was a phenomenal player. He brought it every single snap. He never missed a snap. People talked about him being all about business and working out on his own in the offseason. Well, if you're going to turn up and perform like that week in and week out, if you want to go and practice on the moon, that's fine by me because as long as you bring <laughs> what you brought on game day, that's absolutely fine. But I think for the defensive tackles, I think they'll bring in another one post-June 1st once the Sioux money kind of comes off the books, as it were. Jonathan Hankins, the former Colt, would be a name that I would keep an eye on, potentially. But also, they I mean, there's a kid they got in free agent, uh, an undrafted free agent from Central Florida, Jemias Dittman, who um, I think has got a chance to make the roster. I mean, you watch his game against Auburn in the Peach Bowl. He had a fairly dominant game. He sacked Jarrett Stidham on the first play of the game. He's got a chance of making the roster. And you look at the way that Vincent Taylor and, and especially Davon Godchow played last year, he could enter into that kind of rotation as the fourth guy. It's a big year for Jordan Phillips. And I think, again, there's a bit of a narrative around Phillips being inconsistent and lazy, which he certainly was a little bit, but he is capable of huge pocket collapsing moments. And I think without Sue being there, you kind of feel like maybe Phillips takes that unit on his shoulders now. It's Jordan Phillips's unit. It's also a contract year for him. So I suspect we're going to get his highest level of play yet. He strikes me as a guy who's physically and mentally now ready to take that next step and be a bit of a leader. Also, it's going to be a, essentially a defensive tackle will be a two down unit because Matt Burke is clearly going to employ defensive ends at defensive tackle positions on third down and in obvious passing situations. So you will see a Robert Quinn or a Charles Harris kick inside. You may only have God Chowers as a DT playing alongside a Harris or a Quinn. You look at the guys that they drafted, especially the speed guys, Baker and Minka Fitzpatrick. What Fitzpatrick does is make the team incredibly scheme diverse because you now can play your base 4-3 defense, a nickel defense, and a big nickel defense, which is essentially playing with three safeties, playing one of them as a linebacker. You can do all that with the same personnel on the field. We've never been able to do that before because we haven't had the horses to be able to do it. They're not going to be able to know from snap to snap what defense we're running because Fitzpatrick, is he going to be a free safety? 
Will he, play, will he play boundary corner on the left? Will he play boundary corner on the right? Will he step up into the box? Is he covering a tight end? Will he play strong safety? Where's Rashad Jones? Are we going to run one of those kind of 5-2 monster sets with, with Rashad Jones being the, the monster, which is essentially bringing the, the strong safety to the weak side of the field? All of those things are now offering Matt Burke so much diversity that he's never had before. And also you look at those two guys, you know, Burke's a Jim Schwartz protege, you know, which is a, essentially a four-man rush uh, a simplified zone coverage on the back end, and it allows the defenders, the linebackers, and the, the defensive backs to play fast. But it's it has been impossible to do because we haven't had the people who can play fast because we've been a, a slow defense. You look at Kiko Alonso, watch Kiko try and turn. It's like watching one of those kind of Mississippi paddle boats trying to turn. You know, you wouldn't draft Minka or Baker if you're not going to employ significant pressure packages because both of them blitz really really well Rashad blitzes really really well and we ran you know look at our best game of the season last year especially our best game on defense which was the victory over New England in Miami we ran select pressure concepts throughout that game and they worked very very well Tom Brady never knew what was happening from down to down first down was you know you look at the drive that Xavier Howard had the incredible interception the kind of the over over the shoulder when he was in trail behind Brandon Cooks Jordan Phillips on first down comes through and almost almost sacks Tom Brady. On second down, TJ McDonald bursts through, steps into the box, bursts through and takes down James uh, takes down Lewis in the backfield for a loss. And on third down, Brady not only almost gets taken down when he goes deep, but then Xavier picks the ball off. So I you know, I think team speed has really improved on that defense. Minka just allows, you know, He's just an elite level player that allows you to do so much. And and Baker, you're not gonna he's not gonna come in and uh, and play middle linebacker, but he will be a potentially be a sub package linebacker who will be able to cover tight ends, can get sideline to the sideline. He's a very good tackler, and his best years came in 2016 when he was playing alongside Raekwon McMillan. So those two know each other, they know each other's game inside out. And Raekwon, for me, is the most important player on that defense and potentially the most important player on this team in terms of what he's going to be able to do, because make no mistake about it. The team were absolutely thrilled with what he was able to do before he got injured. I mean, they thought they had a, you know, potential rookie of the year candidate in terms of what he was able to show mentally, physically, the way he picked up the defense, the way he understood calls and those sorts of things. Proof will be in the pudding when he gets on the field, but these two together, I think that's a very exciting package for Miami. Yeah, to sort of go through all of that, for me, starting with linebacker, I think, you know, to me, it's still an unknown. You you mentioned that about McMillan, and it certainly is encouraging, but McMillan, who hasn't stepped on the field, Baker will be a rookie, and Kiko Alonso, I'm, I'm not sure that's enough at linebacker, but to me, where the Fitzpatrick pick makes the most sense is I really think that that fifth defensive back is an underratedly valuable position. It is, to me, supremely undervalued. When everyone's moving to three receiver sets, when the game is spreading out more and more, having a fifth defensive back who can cover an elite level and can stop the run at an elite level is really hard to find. I think it's one of those things kind of like the small ball power forward in the NBA that we just, there hasn't been enough evolution towards that because skill sets were not yet being crafted towards four wide sets or towards small ball basketball. And and so the, the pipeline of players was not ready for that. Minka Fitzpatrick, to me, represents the pipeline being ready for the spread offense. And so him being so evolved to that position, to me, you mentioned the different ways that they can go to five defensive backs. 
to me, having him in the game makes the utmost sense to play safety, to play that fifth defensive back role, and I think that's supremely important. To me, though, the area that is of biggest concern when you're looking at this Dolphins defense is at the other corners. We're kind of taking Xavier Howard and Cordray Tankersley, you didn't mention him at all in, in your kind of uh, preamble there, and for me, they had too many games where they didn't perform or where they didn't look like they were anywhere close to getting a stop, where they looked like anywhere close to creating turnovers. They were a appalling, abysmal at creating turnovers a year ago. And so to me, those two guys are going to have to make a significant leap forward that I'm not sure they're going to. And to me, that's the thing that would hold them back from being a decent defense. That and defensive tackle where you mentioned the different guys that can fill in for Sue. It's still a massive gap to fill. I think outside corner, defensive tackle, you're going to need significant growth in those areas from the young players you have at that position to be a good defense. It's interesting, though. I, I disagree with you on Xavier Howard, to be honest. I think he is developing into an... I think he's close to taking a step to being an upper echelon cornerback. And I think he showed it probably from about week 11 on down the stretch. I thought he played absolutely lights out, shut down. He gets a bit grabby occasionally, and he got away with one or two... Going back to that Patriots game, for example, got away with one or two that perhaps in a, on, on another day he might have got flagged for. But I just think he's understood the nuance of of the game of route running his footwork is excellent he's big you know he made he had two what do you have two picks and a touchdown against the broncos came back with two picks a week later against the patriots he he to me is a is a developing arrow up cornerback and i think he could could be and again look we're going back to ifs again but he looks to me like he is ready to take that next step up. Tough on Tankersley. You know, a third round. I thought he exceeded expectations as, as a third round pick. I thought he had his moments. I thought there were some communication issues that he struggled with. Yeah, he obviously had the concussion. I think getting Tony Lippett back will be interesting because Lippett, I thought, played pretty well before his Achilles tear. Uh, and Bobby McCain. We talked about McCain. And again, I think you're looking at a guy who didn't let himself down at all when he went out and played on the boundary. And I think as a slot corner, uh, to me, Bobby McCain was, if you take, if you took um, Damakon Sue out of that defense last year, Bobby McCain was the was the best player on it. I thought he was potentially MVP of that defense. If you took Sue out of the, the equation, he played that well. He's a good slot cover cornerback. I'm not nearly as concerned about the the, the coverage units as, uh, as you are. I'm actually more concerned, I think. And I think they will be better by having a pure deep center fielder free safety in Fitzpatrick because I assume that's generally where he will play I think that will will allow you know will allow uh, Rashad and uh, TJ to do their thing closer to the line of scrimmage but I think it will give the guys on the perimeter more confidence that they've got a guy who can start out center field and can get to the boundary and help out on either side if he needs to do because that's what Fitzpatrick's game is predicated on so I, I, I'm not nearly as down on the corners as, as you are and maybe I'm just an optimist and a kind of a glass half full guy which I kind of feel like I have been for this entire podcast but I, I feel enthused about the team I do let's uh let's get to this uh, before we go on uh here and I think you have been optimistic but I do think there are reasons to be optimistic when you start looking at the what they've done on offense and defense but if I was just to give you these four names and say in three years this guy is the leader of the Dolphins defense this is the Jason Taylor or the Zach Thomas or that kind of player I'll give you these four names Fitzpatrick McMillan Howard or Harris Fitzpatrick I think will be the one will be the the elite player I think how I mean we've talked about Howard I think he can be very good uh, Harris Harris I mean Harris was half a step away from 10 sacks last season he only had one and a half but if he can close that gap down he could also be a threat and McMillan, who knows? Like I said, proof will be in the pudding. But 
he looks like he could be a difference maker at linebacker. Maybe he's not going to be an all-pro or even a pro Bowl player, but I think he can be very solid. And what I think is exciting about this team is that all of a sudden you've got, and you throw Davin Godchow in as well. Look, you've got, you've got Harris, you've got Godchow, you've got McMillan, you've got Fitzpatrick, and you've got Xavier Howard. You've got a, a real core of young, speedy, intelligent leaders on that defense all of a sudden at, at each of the prime positions. And then you can, you know, you can build around that all of a sudden there's a, a bit of a cornerstone that's, that, that feels like it's worth building. And maybe, you know, if Vincent Taylor develops a little bit and then, you know, Baker develops a little bit and Tankersley steps up a little, all of a sudden you're like, okay, now we've got seven or eight pieces of the puzzle that are as, you know, we'll put our seven or eight up against any seven or eight in the league and we'll see where we are and we'll go toe to toe with you. If again, but enough to be enthused about. But I, I would say of those names, for me, Fitzpatrick is the one that strikes me as having the all probability because I just think the work ethic, the mentality and just how he plays the game elevates him to a different level. This week on the Balls Cast, the bean is up top. Yes. Up top. Top level bean. Do we really need to tell that to people? People need to fucking know because they don't know. Oh my God. Sorry. That's not true. It's true. That's just how I talk to my uh, nine-year-old. Not surprised. The at beans all. up top, buddy. It's <laughs> right on top. Jack and the Beanstalk. You see, it's actually about. It's about a vagina. So do your homework, brush your teeth, and remember the beans up top. <laughs> just like my little bean, and I put them on the top bunk. Subscribe to the Balls Cast today, so you can hear things that make Ethan Skolnick very nervous. Very nervous. All right, let's get on to part four here on the podcast again with Simon Clancy. And let's let's try to encapsulate everything we've talked about now and then put it in the context of the division. So looking at the Jets and the Bills, two teams that took quarterbacks in this draft. You mentioned the Patriots have their quarterback, but we don't know for how much longer. And they didn't get one in the draft either. So they don't have an heir apparent on that roster after trading Garoppolo and, and Brissett last season. How long do you think it's going to be, Simon, if they have this core of young defensive players, if Tannehill and oh, these are all ifs, as we say, but if Tannehill is able to stay healthy, build on the eight and five uh, record that he had with with Gase before he got hurt. If Kenyon Drake uh, can be a lead guy as as a back and, and be a guy who can get you, you know, four and a half yards to carry and maybe get near a thousand yards and also a guy who can get you multi-purpose yards out of the backfield. If the receivers, uh, a couple of them work out, maybe even Parker takes a step. Gusecki is a guy that they can count on for 40, 50 catches and some big plays and some touchdowns. If all of that happens, how far away are they right now from New England, and do you think in any way they've separated themselves a little bit from the Jets and Bills, or do you still think that they're sort of in the mix with those two teams? I think it would be churlish of me to come on and say, yeah, they're close to the Patriots because the Patriots just, you know, have come off back-to-back Super Bowls and Miami were 6-10. and 10. I think the gap is closer than than we think. I think the, the Monday night game where the Dolphins beat the Patriots in Miami shows that the gap is closer than we think. I think that... Um, there's an opportunity in the AFC East now. Look, Belichick is is coming to the end of his time. Tom Brady is coming to the end of his time. And it's been the greatest run in the history of of, of pro football, potentially, that these two have had. But all good things have to come to an end. And that, that Patriots' success, they will dip and they will go back to being, a, you know, a Buffalo or a Miami or a, you know, whoever – some of the mediocre teams because that's generally just how it works. I can't see the, you know, maybe they are lucky and they, they, they get their hands on another Tom Brady, but you know, how often do these 
these things come along. So I think there is an opportunity to do that. You look at Buffalo. Look, Buffalo gave up the house or, or got rid of a lot of players. You know, Tyrod has gone and, uh, you know, Marcel Darius has gone and Ronald Darby has gone and, uh, and all those players that they had. Now you look around and, you know, their starting quarterback is AJ McCarron. They drafted, to me, the big, the guy with biggest bust potential in the in the first round in Josh Allen. Shady McCoy coming off an ankle injury was 29, 30 years old. They're receiving core. You look at, you know, Kelvin Benjamin is the, is the number one guy. Charles Clay, you know, hasn't really dominated the way you thought he might have trained on. That offensive line got rid of Cordy Glenn defensively. Again, Starlo to Lele came in, but it, it kind of feels like a bunch of guys. And I think that, you know, same with the Jets. Look, McCall is there, but Josh McCall is, you know, he's been playing in the NFL since Anthony Fasano started. Is Teddy Bridgewater the guy? Is Hackenberg the guy? Is Petty the guy? When will Darnold start? There are question marks on that Jets team as well. I think there is a huge opportunity over the next two seasons for the Dolphins. If, you know, it, it takes luck, it takes health, it takes some of these things that perhaps the Dolphins have belief, better coaching. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Adam Gaze, and I, you know I I did an interview for a magazine over here in the UK 18 months ago when we came off the playoff season, and I spoke to somebody fairly close to Steve Ross who told me that Steve Ross believes that he has his modern day Don Shula, that Adam Gaze will be that kind of guy, and he showed flashes of that in year one. A whole load of things got on top of him in year two, um, but I know that the review that they did in the off season where they sat down day one and they went through every single piece of the puzzle and try to put it back together. I think this will be a better team, a better coach team. And I think there's a huge opportunity in the AFC East with the Patriots now beginning to crest that peak and come down the other side. Nothing lasts forever. And I think Miami are in the position with Tannehill at 29 going on 30 to be able to step up and really fill that void potentially. I'm not saying we're going to win a Super Bowl, but I think playoffs consistently over the next few years are a real possibility for this team because they're putting together a few cornerstones they're going under the radar a little bit people you know they're the funny oh the dolphins they always do this and tannenbaum is an idiot and this and the other and tannehill's not very good well you know that's fine you keep you keep not believing in this team and i think they might just sneak up on you and crack you in the mouth and we'll see where we are in in two years time but i think there's success coming for this team i really do i only say one thing about the afc east and that is this when the Buffalo Bills traded up to go and get Josh Allen at number seven, I penciled in two wins against Buffalo for the next decade. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm with you. I mean, <laughs> you know, Chris CK Chris Kaufman is a huge Josh Allen fan. To me, you know, you do not become uh, inaccurate quarterbacks at, at Wyoming. Do not be, you know consistencies of inaccuracy, monuments of inaccuracy, do not become you know, 65, 70% completion percentage quarterbacks in the NFL when the windows are much smaller. To me, Josh Allen, I mean, I was very, very happy when the Bills traded up for him. I mean, that to me, that like you say, that's put those two wins in the bag straight away. That's uh, We'll take those. But but to me, I, I think the Jets did well, though, to get Darnold. Yeah, no, absolutely. Listen, if, you, if you're, you know, if you're Todd Bowles and you're sat there and, you know, Sam Darnold appears on your radar because you think he's going to go number one, I mean, you take that every day of the, every day of the week. I mean, you know, 370 days ago, we were all sat here after the after the draft going, well, next year's number one is Sam Darnold. I mean, look what he did against Penn State in that phenomenal Rose Bowl. There's no way he's not going number one. And all of a sudden, you know, Mayfield comes from sort of semi-nowhere and uh, and Darnold falls into the laps of the Jets at, at three. I, I, You know, I'm a big fan of his and that will be tough to watch him, to go up against him. 
and he's just 20 as well so he's going to be around for a long time that that's a that's a tough one to take but you know i'm confident that we've got we've got what it takes yeah, that's, uh, you know, for, for a Dolphins team that's been accustomed to seeing some of the Jets quarterbacks in recent years, it'll be a little strange to see someone uh, who's better. Although I, yes, who's good, right? Although I, I will admit, Simon, and, and this is, uh, you know, this is one of another strikes against me, is I actually grew up in New York, and when I moved down to South Florida in 1985, I moved down with my Ken O'Brien jersey, my number seven. (laughs) And the first speech, I had to write a speech uh, in school. And the first speech that I wrote was how Ken O'Brien and the Dolphins were going to beat, um, excuse me, Ken O'Brien and the Jets uh, were going to beat the Dolphins on Monday night. And I went to that game and that was 45 to three Dolphins (laughs) with Lorenzo Hampton (laughs) running all the, the great Lorenzo Hampton running all over the the Jets in that game. So uh, I'll I'll put my Ken O'Brien jersey uh, back in the closet. All right, check out Three Yards Per Carry with Simon Clancy. Their next episode will be Thursday morning this week. They're, they're going to be going every Thursday in the offseason, and when the season starts, switching that to every Monday and Thursday. Simon, thanks for being uh, so charitable with your time with us and uh, for showing uh, Whittingham what a proper English accent <laughs> should sound like. <laughs> Absolutely. Good stuff. No, it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.